How are you? How was your trip? Tell me all the things. <laughs> uh, the trip was good. I think it was exactly what I expected, which is fine. It wasn't worse. It really wasn't better. Um, so, yay. Good. Yay, done. Did that. Check that box. Not a cruiser, huh? Not a cruiser. I'm still not a cruiser. It wasn't horrible. Um, it's just not my thing. I don't love it. Yeah. I don't love it. I'd rather just go to the beach in Mexico and be there for a week than yeah. cruise by and, and look at it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that does seem But weird. everybody always loves the idea of a cruise, so I feel like I needed to satisfy that requirement for all the people. Mm-hmm. And then they all basically said, yeah, next time, can we just go to Mexico? Yes, exactly. Now you all know why I said that. So I didn't want to be the villain that said we're not going on a cruise. So we're done. Yeah. Well, that's good you did it. I've never been on one. I think sometimes that I would really like to go on. Like my best friend Chrissy loves going on cruises. So I feel like I could like it. I just don't know if I like the idea of like being on a boat. I don't know. I, I am not a big boat person. I I don't want to not be able to see land. I don't like that idea. Um, maybe I have had too many Titanic nightmares in my life, but I just don't think a cruise is for me, but I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Um, yeah. So you came home to a heavy week. It's been a heavy week in the fertility world. I feel like it's, it has, it has, it's, uh, oh, there's a lot to say about it, I think. And, um, Obviously, for those of you that are must be living under a rock, if you don't know this, at this point, the Alabama Supreme Court has ruled that embryos are children, dependents, in a recent case that was <coughs> so, um, determined on Friday, last Friday. So the fertility world's pretty up in arms, and obviously Alabama is our neighboring state, and we, I personally did IVF in Alabama made all my embryos over there. So it feels very personal to me. We have a lot of friends who are reproductive endocrinologists and embryologists and IVF nurses who are all coming together um, to try and figure out what's next for IVF in Alabama. And it's a really scary slash, I think this is going to be a big, a lot's going to happen from this. I don't know. What are your thoughts, Erin? Yeah, I agree. I think a lot's going to happen. I think the problem with all of these Supreme Court declarations is that there are these mic drops. The Supreme Court just says, yeah, embryos are people. Boom, done. And they walk out and they just leave it open. Mm-hmm. And I think the struggle is the unknown. I, right. I think a lot of people are doomsday prepping, are jumping to extreme conclusions and making a lot of assumptions and a lot of speculation. And I'm not saying that none of that's warranted. You know, I think we do want to be the devil's advocate and look at how how badly it could go. But I also feel like the answer is not always to just start fires. Um, but that's what social media kind of thrives on, is a lot of people just getting out there and going off. So... I don't know. I think there's a, I think, you know, you need a minute of letting the people that are involved figure it out as a group, right? Like this is affecting a lot of different kinds of physicians in the state. 
And I think the physicians in the state probably need a minute to get together and discuss amongst themselves how they want to handle it, how they want to approach it, because I think you'll get better traction if they are a unified voice. And I don't really know what that looks like, but I feel like there's a stampede of people that it doesn't even pertain to who don't live in this state that are saying a lot. And I just don't know if it's beneficial to go at it from that angle. I do think it's important that like, as the public, as advocates and patient responders, that we do show our disagreement and our confusion. I, all, all that's important, I'm not saying don't do that, but I also think it's unresolved. That's all, that's all we know is that it's unresolved and that it's going to take some time to figure out what happens next. So for the people that are immediately affected, I wish everybody would give them the space that they need to get the work done. The work is finding out what happens next, finding out how to approach it, uh, doing the research to look at how this similar situation in other states has played out. What does it mean for consent? There's a ton of legal that needs to take place. So I don't think the answer is just to decide that you know, life as we know it in IVF is going to end. I don't think that's beneficial. I think that's fear-mongering. And all the people that are waiting to do IVF in Alabama are now going to freak out and panic. And I don't think that's the answer. So anyhow, I don't know. I have big feelings about it. I'm more of a Taoist, and the Taoist tendency is like, chill. <laughs> let's give it a minute and not necessarily let's run out and set the world on fire. And I just am, am in the minority when it comes to that. Mm. Yeah, because I want to set it on fire. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's really stressing me out. But you're not in, you're not doing IVF. <clears throat> I know, but I did IVF. But and I not, did but that's it in, in your Alabama. Past. It is in my but past. In your past. Right. But Which I can still what, have, I can still have an saying, opinion so of like, it. Why is that stressing you out? Because I have, have so many friends that are doing that, that are in the midst of it, that are in Alabama. We have so many members of the fertility resort Absolutely. who are in Alabama who are in the midst of it. So on their right. behalf, yes, I am stressed out for them because of the unknown. But I think what I'm trying to say is it doesn't have to be so stressful if we just let it, let it work itself out. Let it, it slows things down. Yes. Very much but so. I, I don't think that everybody in the fertility resort and all the people that we know in Alabama are going to have to have all their cycles canceled. I don't think oh, no, that's I don't, going to happen. I don't think that either. Don't misinterpret that. I don't think that either. I don't think IVF, or at least from what I know, is gone in Alabama. I'm not saying that. I'm saying I think that one of the biggest factors in reproductive technology is the waiting game. And I think all those people that have been waiting for so long are now going to be waiting even longer. And I think that that does ensue stress. And the unknown is so clear. That's true. All yeah. of that is true. Like, let's, I don't want to make myself sound <clears throat> like an asshole here. <laughs> I'm not saying that. I just, stress is not, worry doesn't solve anything. Of we course not. We can all him and haw and sit around and like chew on our knuckles. But it doesn't solve anything. And that's what I'm saying. Like, there's just going to have to be a process, and there's nothing to do except let it play out. Yeah. 
you know, yeah. being stressed about it and jumping up and down is just going to tire you out. It's not going to solve the problem. Yeah, but so. you're like talking to IVF patients right now. I mean, stress is the culprit in so many things. So like telling right. someone and to stop stressing out is not the solution. Everybody knows you should stop stressing out. Right, but you don't. Right, but, the, but we all know that that's not the answer. So that's what I'm saying. Like somebody also has to be the voice that says, hey, everybody, calm down. It's it, We're going to get it worked out. Somebody needs to say, ladies, families, husbands, partners, spouses, people with uteri, mm -hmm. give it a minute. We don't know. We just don't know. Yeah, but has anybody said that yet? No. I'm trying to say it right now. You are saying I'm it. trying to say it right now. Right. But the people somebody, somebody in charge has not said that yet. And I think that's because they don't know thing. what's happening yet. That's right. my point. The people in charge don't even it happened on Friday. Today is Wednesday. They don't even know right. what is happening yet. So you can't expect it to come until they've had a minute to start working on it. So, so that's all I'm saying. So who actually is in charge then? I don't think anybody knows. That's what I'm like. So you have the medical board, right? The of course. Alabama Medical Board. I think they have a role to play. Um, you know, is ASRM, the American Society, in play? Or because it's a state's issue? Again, we don't know. It's all going to have to be figured out. I think that that's the part that's scary for people who are in Alabama, who are going through this, who are actively pursuing IVF in the state, is that nobody seems to know who's in charge. Because historically, your doctor's in charge of you and your care, but now your doctor is not in charge of you and your care at the moment. So right. how does that move forward? Yeah, I don't know. I think that's, that's very I don't scary. Think it is very scary. It, it is. It is very scary. It's very... Um, distressing i don't want to undermine that yes but setting fires and fanning the flames is not beneficial in this moment i don't think i think somebody needs to try to have a kumbaya instead and say like <laughs> let's band together and use our voices and let's do it in a way that doesn't come across as hysterical let's do it in a way that actually galvanizes each other Totally. Because hysteria is not a productive. solution for most Agreed. things. It's right. not. It's not productive. That's I what I agree with that. The yeah. hysteria, once it dies down, we can actually figure out, okay, now what are we going to do about it? But as long as everybody is in absolute panic, we're not going to get a lot of momentum. Yeah. Agreed. It's just really, really challenging. And it I is. think because of what we've seen with Roe yes. and the overturning, yes, it's inciting a higher level of panic, but it's also showing how at risk we actually are. Correct. And I think that you just hit the nail on the coffin, is that that is the overarching scary part of all of this. It's control. Yeah. It's women's rights, it's all of those things. I think that that yeah. is the part that's so scary. Is it just as another tick in control? Yeah. I agree. And I have to say, my fight, flight, or freeze is freeze. Mm. I am a freezer. When shit hits the fan, I just hunker down for a minute. 
yeah. to figure things out. I'm not a fighter. Mm, mm-hmm. That's just not where I go. Yeah. So I'm just expressing my innate tendency, which yeah. is, you know, when I smashed my thumb and my thumb was in my hand, all my kids were like, you didn't even cry. You didn't flinch. You just like went into this other. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. When I'm in a panic. My panic is chill the fuck out. Let's figure this out. And it's yeah. not to go start punching faces. So I'm just fulfilling my role in this whole thing, which is to say, okay, you guys, we need a leader. Let's pick one. Right. And then let's move forward. Yeah. So I some agree. people will gravitate towards that. And some people will be like, I hate her. <laughs> She's always telling us to calm down. And yes, that's my role. Yeah. You know, it can't be anybody else but me. So I got to say true. it my way. Well, in reference to your kumbaya thought, we are going to host a virtual large town hall in the Fertility Resort next week. Um, we are planning for anybody that has questions, thoughts, needs support, wants to connect with others who are, you know, on this same uncertain journey of IVF in Alabama we are hosting a virtual event next Thursday February 29th um it will be in the fertility resort um but it will be open to the public so uh we will be posting about that immediately on all of our social platforms about where you can find the link to join and yeah um we're not exactly sure of what the format of that's going to look like but we are creating it to be kind of like a town hall so that we can all come with questions and, you know, solutions or whatever you think you could do to help contribute to finding the solution of the problem that we're facing right now. We want. And I think at that point in time, there might be a little more information available. There might be petitions or some other grassroots campaign effort that have shown up. Um, so hopefully by then we do have more to offer as far as what the next steps might look like. But anybody who's in the community as a professional, please, if you're a nurse, if you're an embryologist, if you're a medical doctor, anybody that ha- practice administrator, anybody mm-hmm. that lives in this community, please participate. Um, again, on one hand, we want to allow people an opportunity to express their concerns, but in my opinion, we also want to try to allay people's fears and help them find a way to be patient through this process and not be in panic. Yeah. I, that's the last thing we want to see is all the people that are in the IVF treadmill, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just in an absolute panic. So I want to, to hopefully help ease those yeah ease the anxieties and offer some soothing uh words of wisdom too yeah so y'all come and join us next week more to more details to come yes more details to come stay tuned to our social platforms for all of that info um and on a not actually lighter note um this (laughs) might have been one of my favorite episodes of the podcast we ever recorded um So on today's episode, we have Bailey Henry. She is a wife, mother, author, and self-proclaimed 
accidental women's health advocate. Her debut book, Having a Baby and Other Things I'm Bad At, was released in June 2021. And her resources, such as The Miscarriage Guide and A Friend of a Friend's Guide to Grief, have been shared across the globe. She is amazing. Um, Everybody cried in this episode. It was the first time I cried on one of our podcast episodes, actually. Um, Aaron cries. Aaron cries a lot. I cry a bunch of times. I think I cried three times. You did, but you also cry. I'm a a deep feeler. I'm a deep feeler. It's just a thing. You are. It's true. Like I said, I'm not a fighter. I'm a feeler. Yeah. 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 I think you can be both. Maybe I can be both. But that's like, you know, when people come in the clinic, that's the thing they gravitate towards the calming, the soothing, because I'm not a fighter. So, yeah. Anyhow, but I am a crier. I do cry. And I did cry at Bailey. And I just feel like, oh my God, I want to be her next door neighbor. I just want to hang out with her. I love her. Yeah. She's absolutely wonderful. Um, So, today, yeah, in the podcast, we talk about all things miscarriage, grief. I mean, advocacy and how we can change the narrative hopefully surrounding miscarriage and baby loss and what that looks like um just from like a personal standpoint from her own brand that she's built with her miscarriage guide and beyond um and she also talks about her amazing son Samuel um that she adopted and it's just very it's it's a it's a really beautiful story so We're very excited for you to listen and definitely check out our show notes on this episode because she'll have links to a lot of her, what she calls props. So her miscarriage guide and a friend of a friend's guide to grief will all be linked there. So you guys should definitely check it out. And if you guys have any questions for us about what's happening um, in the world right now, or like if you're looking for resources or community, please reach out. Um, just, you know, obviously slide into our DMs at Protected Space Pod or LB Liggett or at Dr. Aaron IVF Coach. We are here for you. So anyways, y'all enjoy. We're so excited to have you on the Protected Space podcast. Thank you for taking time out of your day to talk to us about all things you and your journey and your story and what you're doing now. Um, so, yeah, if you could tell us tell us about you um, in as much or as little detail as you feel comfortable sharing. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, I'm Bailey Henry. I'm a Mississippi native. I... I guess my elevator pitch for platforms and podcasts like this is I call myself an accidental women's health advocate. Um, (laughs) I studied communications in college. I've always worked in the interior design marketing kind of world. Um, I've been married to my college sweetheart since 2015. And I thought, I never thought anything like this would happen to me. I just I've been surrounded by people my whole life who can snap their fingers, take a nap and get pregnant. And that's not been my story at all. 
So uh, right before the pandemic, I just had this incredible feeling. I'd already had four consecutive miscarriages by then with little to no explanation of why this kept happening to me. And so then with the onset of the COVID pandemic, and I don't, I say this a lot in interviews and I don't mean to make light of the situation at all, but truly like we were told to stay at home. Everything was like fear, fight, flight, whatever with, with the pandemic. And I thought, my God, this is it. We're all going to die. And I didn't do half the things that I wanted to do in my life. Like this is terrible. So I just sat home and I wrote a book. Um, and I thought if not now, when, if not me, who I've always been an avid reader. And I think it was around my second or third miscarriage. I went to Barnes and Noble to look for a very specific kind of book on infertility and I only found two camps, the kind that was very scientific, egg, sperm, what to eat, what not to eat, put your feet over your head kind of a thing, or a very devotional, sad women, woe is me, you're not praying enough, and then you'll have a baby. Those are the only two books that I found. And I thought, well, that's not good enough. So I want to know about the woman. I want to know about all the dumb things that people in her family have said to her about not having a baby. I want to know about how her life still went on, even if she could or couldn't have children. And so I just basically dug deep into my journals and I published my first book called Having a Baby and Other Things I'm Bad At in June of 2021. And then um, as that book was coming out, I didn't know that I was pregnant again. And I, I went on to lose um, our fifth and sixth pregnancy. It was twins. And then three weeks later, after I gave birth to our daughter in a very traumatic manner, um, our son moved home and things have been a whirlwind since then. Six miscarriages, a book, a beautiful miracle boy came waddling through my door and, um, you know, and then I just kept creating stuff. Uh, I've had a podcast I host an event for women in the spring um, in our central Mississippi area. Uh, I just released a line of greeting cards specifically for um, infertility and women's health. Um, and I just had a friend of mine say, you just keep coming up with stuff. And I said, well, I just keep getting my heart broken. I don't know what else to do, you know? So sorry. I feel like that was so jumbled and rambled. Uh, but yeah, no. that's me. Um, Bailey, Mississippi writer, podcaster, creator, bad at Instagram sometimes mom of a four-year-old hey <laughs> I feel like one everything you said made me cry and gave me some goosies um not only because your story is heartbreaking but because it's so familiar mm -hmm. I've been on that walk with some people um I feel like you're a soul sister to us because everything about our projects it's not because I've had an infertility journey. I've just been a witness to so many. Um, but everything that prompted you to do what you did is exactly our story too, our why. It's just, there's there's nothing in the middle and everything is, there's just these giant holes and it feels very profoundly empty mm -hmm. when you're looking for something, when you're looking for support. And you know how I found you? I was having sushi and green tea with a friend and she was, she had, I think she's only had one, but she's had one sort of later miscarriage. And she said, you know, when I got home and got situated and then I got this bill from the hospital for this horrendous 
traumatic experience. And she said, you know, and it just really pissed me off because I felt like the hospital should have sent me a gift box. The hospital should have sent me a guidebook. And then she was saying like, how come there's no a guide to having a miscarriage? And then we kind of inadvertently were like, well, let's just Google that. And there was one. And I thought, oh my gosh, she wrote it. This is amazing. So that's when I discovered you and got really tickled about your whole sharing experience and said, Brian, we got to have this Gail on Love podcast. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank God the algorithm is working in my favor. I don't know how you just <laughs> it. It right up. That's amazing. <laughs> it did. It did work. Um, well, I will say, Bailey, we have very parallel stories. Um, I have had seven miscarriages and the fertility resort was literally born out of my want and need to make the communication or gap smaller um, between patients and providers and experts in the field and the real women who are going through all of this. So I am so sorry that you're one of me and that that's, I'm just so sorry that that's you. Me too. There's not really like anything to say other than that. I know it's just such a lonely, (laughs) and I've been through like some pretty tough stuff in in my life. And this is like by far the loneliest thing you've ever walked through. And I I put that at the end of my book. It's like, there's so many of us who go through this. It's like getting an invitation to one big party, but everybody goes alone and everybody goes at a different time. Um, It's just so devastating. So I'm sorry. Thank you. Can I ask, are you guys still trying to have biological children or like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we had, uh, what I call like the buffet surgery in June, mm-hmm. just you know, this summer in June, um, you know, cleaning out the tubes, one more DNC, removing endometriosis, some polyps, PCOS. I had all that taken out of me. Um, and I've been on, I'm sure y'all are familiar with the progesterone, uh, Megastrol acetate. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's a heck of a progesterone prescription, um, but they found some precancerous cells oh. in my uterus during surgery, which everybody was super alarmed about. And I wasn't, I was, I just had a feeling like, I know that this is not my journey. I know that I do not have cancer. I will not have cancer. I just know that about myself and my story. Like you just have that like innate gut pull and I'm like, this isn't it. I, mm. I'm worried about other stuff, but this is not one of those things. But I, my husband and my OB was like, well, we're so happy that you're very confident in that. However, you are taking this medicine for three months. Mm. I have never related to the Hulk or like Jekyll and Hyde more. <laughs> it has, it destroyed me. It was not a fun summer at the Henry house oh. over here. It was not enjoyable hot flashes, mood swings, weight gain, insomnia. I'm forgetting now because I think I've like blacked it out, but it was horrible. It was horrible. Can you tell us why, like how, do you know how that is supposed to work? What is this mega dose progesterone actually supposed to do for prevention of cancer? So specifically, the Megastrol acetate is to treat women who have breast cancer or uterine cancer. Mm. 
Hmm. Um, and so, and if they find the precancer cells, they just want to go ahead and attack it full force head on, which I get. Does anybody want to mess around with cancer? No, we don't. We don't have time for that. I totally understand. However, um, it was just, I was the most irritable version of myself. I was, and I don't know about the weather where y'all are, but we had the hottest summer we've ever had. And we're still, pardon me, we're still technically in the middle of a drought. We have not Same had here. measurable rain mm -hmm. since I think May 20th and wow. today, November 6th. Like we wow. are in an incredible, very alarming um, dry season. And so it was just, I was hot. I was swollen and icky. It was just, it was disgusting. It was horrible. Um, so I'm off you, of it now. Okay. Pre-cancer cells are gone. Um, you know, and it's just one of those things I'll stick in my back pocket and know better for next time. Um, but yeah, it was horrible. So to answer your original question, man, I am a rambler this morning. Um, we had that surgery, took that terrible medication. We are getting getting ready to get ready to to try again. It's so it's very alarming, you know, when you've had so many losses. It is truly like preparing for battle. Yes, it is. And I feel like I have been at war with my own body and my own fertility since 2017. So your girl's tired. I'm a little worn out. My body is tired. I am mentally, spiritually tired. And I'll be honest with you, we've got maybe one or two tries left in us and then we're done. We're exhausted. Can I ask, have you, have you guys ever done any sort of like extensive, like gone to see like a reproductive endocrinologist? Mm -hmm. um, and there's, is it unexplained infertility? Still unexplained. Um, and even after that surgery, my OB was like, okay, I found some stage one endometriosis, some little bitty PCOS. But nothing off the charts that would be like, oh, this is it. This is why you lost six pregnancies. Nothing, nothing like that. This is probably like a crazy question to ask too, but I do want to ask because I found that this was one of the things that I really regret not being offered before. I had three miscarriages before I went to see um, a reproductive endocrinologist. And with my previous DNCs, um, I was never asked if, I wanted to test the fetus for chromosomal abnormalities or issues. And so my first three pregnancies were completely unexplained as far as the loss. Was that something you were offered at your hospital? Yeah, I've had um, two pregnancies tested. Um, the And what feels so icky is, you know, the further along you are, I mean, that is, that is your child. That is your yeah. baby. Um, so our daughter, we, she was perfect. She was perfect. No explanation how, at all. Mm -mm, nope. wow. How far along were you when you had all your losses? Are they all over the place or they're was there over, some rhythm all over the place? Um, but our, I was almost just right at the second trimester mark. I was in between my 13th and 14th week with our daughter. Um, and that doesn't sound, you know, you've got 40 weeks. I had a long way to go, but people just don't realize like, how big she was, um, even at that early gestation, um, it was truly like giving birth. It was, that was when my latest loss was too. I mean, it was a horrible, traumatic, horrible, mm -hmm. horrible experience. Were you at home or in the hospital? 
Um, I started bleeding at work and so took myself to the hospital, got in, you know, it's like one of, it's kind of like one of those things where you feel like you're like watching from above, like you can't believe it's you. And, you know, they did an ultrasound and there was no longer a heartbeat and they sent me home and they were like, if you start throwing up, come back. And I, that all they said was that it's just going to be, I was like, well, I've had two of these before, like, like, you know, and my other two losses were at like six and seven weeks. So they were much earlier on, you know, this was twice as far along at that point. And so I went home and I kind of just like, this sounds like so weird, but I did the thing where you like lay towels out on your couch and you curl on up and you just hope, put a diaper on and you just hope. And we did that. And then at some point in time, I went to sleep. And then in the middle of the night, I woke up, I had started throwing up and then I passed out in the bathroom and my husband put me in the car and took me to the hospital. And that trip to the hospital was actually very caring. I had like one of the, the, probably the best like emergency room doctor I could have ever had. He held my hand and he was like, we, we have to, we have to take the baby now. Like it's time. And so I had a DNC in the middle of the emergency room. But and my poor husband sat with me and watched the whole thing, and it was just horrific. All of it was horrific, horrible. Doesn't it sound like so? As you explain your story, and I do that when I talk about um, Lorelai. That's what we named our little girl. I love um, that. It sounds barbaric. It does. I mean, it's so like inhumane. It is so dissociated. It is sterile. Like it's yep. not, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it absolutely is. And, you know, again, I think feel like I was really lucky that second time because the first time I was there, you know, like the doctor that I talked to, my, my OB was in that hospital, was associated with that hospital, but she was out of town, I think is what it was, something like that. Um, so I could, didn't even get a chance to talk to her. So I was talking to all strangers and the first doctor that first time I went the day before, you know, she was callous and I get it. It's in an emergency room trauma situation. I'm not an emergency at that point, but it was like, okay, well, it's going to bleed a little bit more. Just come back if you throw up. Like it was so transactional. It was not, nothing about it was warm at all. And it, yeah, it just really set me up for an experience that I was not prepared for. Um, Cause like I said, it was so different than, my first two miscarriages that were earlier on it was just so different um but yeah and I wish so much that we had we were had been given the option that day to test I think it would have completely changed the whole trajectory of like my infertility journey like and because I just didn't know and I you don't know what you don't know in those moments right yeah my um my sixth loss was what completely launched the miscarriage guide um because at that point like i said it was and you know maybe they knew my chart they knew my numbers i'd had a lot of losses they thought i was a pro at this <laughs> at oh. that point um but they still sent me home with nothing and at that point your hormones are so off the chart like you are pregnant girl like if and that's another soapbox that i've always stood on if you take a pregnancy test and it is positive and then 5 minutes later somehow you're not pregnant whether it is 
you know, you've given birth to a healthy nine pound baby, or you've had a horrible miscarriage, you're still postpartum. Mm -hmm. Like they sent me home with zero postpartum tools. And I went through everything. Like I went through everything. I, I still, I mean, I had like the second trimester boobs and I had the postpartum hair loss and I, my husband, um, we, we were unaware of what the fundal massage was. And so then I went through like reverse phantom labor as my uterus tried to close on its own that night, you know, and I've had friends give birth to babies really late on like 28, 27 weeks and their milk comes in and there's no child to feed. Like we send women home with nothing. nothing. And I just could not stomach that any longer. I'm like, if we're, we're going to, we're going to make something. And now apparently it comes up on Google. So that's super impressive. It does. <laughs> it does. I, I just I, have to commend you both for how clear you present your stories and the way that a listener who has not been through that can imagine just what that feels like. I've not ever been there. And it's just, I don't know. I know you have to just keep moving, but it's just, I mean, look, I'm a mess. That oh, It baffles me that, um, that this is medical care. I mean, it's called care, right? <laughs> Where's the care part? It kills me. So I'm just so impressed at all the people like you who are doing this and sharing this, and you are really going to change it. You're going to change it. It is in process and you might change it by <laughs> it might be parades of women with picket signs but if that's what it takes then so be it you know if it doesn't come from the healthcare facility fine it's going to come from somewhere so I'm really excited to be a part of the change makers thanks thanks for letting us know what we need to know to help people thanks I'm sorry you cried <laughs> I'm just having a feeling today. <laughs> it is okay, funny. I, uh, I don't know if you're like this or not, Bailey, but um, we have a friend and like mentor, um, Daniel, who always tells me every time I try, he's like a professional speaking coach. So anytime Aaron and I are doing any kind of pitching or whatnot, we, um, we always have like a little mini like cram session with him first. And, you know, a big part of our elevator pitch is that is my story and the why behind the fertility resort and I he always tells me that like if I'm not paying attention I laugh when I'm talking about trauma oh and I had never had anybody point that out to me before but it is so real now I catch myself like I'm having very inappropriate visceral reactions to my own trauma as I retell it and I don't really know how to fix that. And I don't know how, that's just like how my body responds. And he's like, it's very, he said it can be very jarring for somebody else, for the person that you're talking to when you're talking about this kind of trauma. And I'm like, well, what's the, op what, what, I don't, it's, a, it's emotion. I'm either going to laugh or I'm going to sob. I don't know. Right. Like, do you find yourself having those kinds of moments ever? Oh man, I guess I need to start paying attention to, to how I deliver my story. Um, you know, but what's so funny is that 
it, it's not funny and it's not a laughable situation. It's not. But if your body, if your subconscious puts on that coat to like throw in a laugh or two when you're talking about the worst thing that's ever happened to you, um, let's just roll with it for a minute because you'd never leave the house. I mean, right. truly, you if you truly let your emotions take over you and that fight, flight, fear, freeze, whatever it is, you would just freeze and we would never see you again. You know, like you you have to put on some sort of like emotional jacket to be like, <laughs> isn't this so funny? <laughs> and then kind of have that nervous laughter. I mean, what else what else are we supposed to do? But I don't know if I've ever laughed. Um, I always sort of like, I, I think I skip over a lot because our story with losing Lorelai is so, it's a lot. Um, I think I'd, you know, kind of skip over some bits and pieces, but I don't know if I laughed. So can I ask, how is your husband, Bailey? How? Because two people lose a baby, right? Not yeah. when when you're in a married couple, two people lose a baby. So how is he, and how has this been for him, and what's his coping strategy? And we always talk about, you know, we do focus on the women so much, which is important, but it's also important to recognize the partner aspect. Yeah, he. I've said this before. I managed to marry someone who was 10 times nicer and more level-headed and more patient than I am, which really works out in my benefit. If you're going to have a lot of trauma thrown at you, I've pretty much married Ted Lasso and I'm super, super thankful for that. Um, but he is precious. He is himself a miracle child. My mother-in-law really struggled with infertility. Um, he had, a little sister. They were very, very excited to meet her. And, um, she was a stillborn when he was about nine and he can remember that vividly. So this has been just sort of a cruel history repeating itself, I guess. And I look at him so much and I'm like, God, why him? This is when I cry and get emotional. I can do like the trauma laugh and laugh things off. Like I'm a tough cookie. But when I think about what an incredible father he is to our son, when I think of anybody in the world who would be like the best father ever, it's him. And I've given him before our son came home, I gave him so many outs. I would go to him and say, there is a fertile woman out there who can give you kids and she she won't be as cool as me, but she will give you kids. (laughs) And you're phenomenal. Just go for it. And he never left. Um, No, I, I, I had the exact same conversation with my husband. I've had hundreds of the same conversation with my husband. I'm so glad you have a, my husband, (laughs) they sound very similar, (laughs) just the nicest boys on the planet. Um, so Aaron, to answer your question, the first probably two or three miscarriages, he was just a very silent, stoic version of his normal self. And I wrote about that in my book and I just kind of walked up to him one day. I think it was after our first or second miscarriage. And I was like, Hey dude, are you ever going to be sad? Cause you sure don't look it. And I kind of need you to like throw a pity party with me here for a second. Yeah. And, um, he just kind of 
swallowed all of his emotions. And he said, you know what? I went through this so much as a kid with my mom. This doesn't really affect me. Mm. And I punched him. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't. Uh, <laughs> but I just kind of looked at him and I said, you've never been through this with me. And you've never been through this as the dad. So you can be here and wake up a little bit or like, this is going to make it worse. And I think he totally understood. He, he got better at understanding it. But when we lost our little girl, he, um, I mean, I fully like gave birth to her in the doctor's office, not even in a hospital, in an exam room. She came out into my doctor's hands um, and due to COVID restrictions, I gave birth alone. And Aww. so when Kyle came back in, the last thing he had heard was indefinite bed rest, do not move, because I was losing so much blood. And they um, did everything they could to stop it. And we heard our daughter's heartbeat. It was still perfect. It was fast. She was wiggling. She was doing so well. And within an hour, I gave birth to her. What? Mm-hmm. Oh. And, and we have no idea why. We have no idea what happened. Oh, my God. Nope. So she um, she came out. And then I had a nurse run down to the parking lot. Because at that time, they still weren't letting dads into the exam room, just the sonogram room. And so she ran out to get him and she said, do you want me to tell him what happened before he comes back in? And I said, no, I want him to hear it from me. He came back in and I just looked at him and I just started apologizing. And then I think the doctor turned around and she had our daughter wrapped up. Um, and we held her and we cried and we prayed over her and our doctor gave us the option to look at our little girl and we have zero regrets about this, but I looked at my husband and I said, I'm not going to look, I've seen too many children at the bottom of our toilet. Yep. And he said, well, I haven't seen that. So I want to see her. And so he looked at her. And I have no regrets about not looking. He has no regrets about seeing her, but it was him seeing her, Aaron, that really solidified what my body had been through, what we had been through. And so it took him, you know, six miscarriages and five years to see her and then to be like, oh man, we're really up a creek here, aren't we? (laughs) You know, and, but he's been heartbroken. Um, He's been incredibly supportive. And I think it, we know the value of things now, not as if we didn't before, but with our son, like we, we now, and I'm sure a lot of parents do this, but our son just wrapped up his first t-ball clinic a bunch of four-year-olds playing baseball. If you need a good laugh, or like a good <laughs> wholesome feeling, go watch some kids um, try and play baseball. Um, 
And like our son just did so good. He made so many improvements. He was running faster and stronger and he hit the ball and he ran to second and it was just amazing. And it's stuff like that. Like when we get in the car where most people would be like, that's so cute. When he did so good, like, let's go home. Kyle and I just look at each other and we weep and we're like, we have it. We have a kid, we have a child. And it's just the best thing in the world. And so it's made us very emotional, but so grateful for what we have and for where we've been. Ooh. Wow. Sorry. No. <laughs> no. Thank you so much for being for sharing all of that. I'm I'm just so I don't know. I feel like we're very kindred souls in a lot of ways. In all the ways. You know, when I think about my husband too and it is so my husband's sister and her husband they experienced a late-term loss um and he always told Sam that like everybody's been checking on her but nobody checks on me Mm. and he's like none of my friends want to talk about it nothing Mm-hmm. And then when Sam and I had our third miscarriage, it was like, Sam was the same way in a lot of ways where he like, I felt like he tried to be very strong and stoic and not show a lot of emotion because I was having all the, to let me have all, he like wanted to like save the emotion for me to have kind of thing, right. at least with our first two losses. And then when our third loss, feedback, right? So yeah. And then with our third loss, after I had the baby, we were back home and Justin, they made food for us. He came over and it was like, I remember sitting in the living room, looking out the window and Justin got out of the car and like dropped the food and hugged Sam and they just sobbed together. And I'd like, that was the first time I'd ever seen Sam sob cry. And they both did. And I was like, oh my God. In this like weird and cruel and twisted fucked up way, I'm so glad that they have each other so that they, because they both know, you know, what yeah. that feel, feels like. And it was the first time Sam, I think, had ever really processed the loss and grief. And, mm-hmm. um, and as I don't know, like ever since then, it's been hard for him. But yeah, it took three for him to get there. And I think it took him that moment with Justin to like fully understand and yeah. allow himself to feel the feels, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing that we have found men and women will never grieve the same way at the same time. Right. Um, and it's going to take them a minute, you know? <clears throat> um, but yeah, they'll come around. I'm so sorry. But what a sweet. I don't know. I try not to romanticize grief too much, but yeah. that that's a good vision for you to have for this. It is two. for sure. Yeah. It's um, not a, you're right. I liked, I like that term romanticize grief, but there was a little bit of that in that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, wow. We just got really heavy. I've never cried on the podcast before. Mm-hmm. I'm oh, telling you what, it's kind of like surprising. It's a big day. I knew. I knew. I was planning this the whole time. You did? Well, but Bibi, I think it's just when you find someone who knows what the level of, 
you know, grief and loss that you've been through. That's fortunately not as common. Right. Um, so I just think, again, when you when you meet somebody that really understands where you are, I think there's a little part of you that gets to like, you know, really show your underbelly. Mm-hmm. For like sure. Sam and Justin standing there, like you're kind of having this moment with Bailey in the kindredness of that kind of heartache. Well, I just think it's heartache that like is still, even though there's much, much more awareness for it now than there was before, you know, even five years ago, that still really isn't talked about. Like mm-hmm. I had a moment at dinner with um, some friends all my most of my friends have kids at this pretty much all of them <laughs> except for like one um and her and her wife are hopefully gonna be going on that journey very soon um but after dinner like there was like a solid 45 minutes at dinner where all they talked about and it's not their fault was kids and daycare and sickness and and I didn't have anything to say because I don't know and after dinner, my friend, it was my friend Molly, she came up to me and she hugged me and she started crying because she also went through IVF and a lot of loss. And she was like, I tried so hard to change that conversation because I could just see her face. Mm-hmm. And she was like, and people would never think that like other, you're, they're our friends. Like nobody would ever think that that conversation is hard to go through, but that conversation to sit and listen to when you've experienced that much loss is impossible and I just thought it was so nice for her to like she's on the other side kind of now I mean she has a beautiful little boy via embryo adoption which is amazing um and yeah I don't know I just that acknowledgement was really special to me and I wish that there was a way to not tell everyone about that but just I just think there's so many little things that happen in the world that nobody that people who haven't been through loss and grief and infertility and all those things that they have no idea sting when they sting. I don't know. Um, so I have a question about, okay. So the miscarriage guide. So tell us a little bit more about that. Has that been healing for you? It's been very healing. Um, I think, you know, the reception of it wasn't super great. It was, it's really. really... <laughs> Tell us about that. Uh, so, okay. This we have really... a similar, we have a similar story about yes. writing something that was very mixed reviews. So I would love to yeah. hear yours. Yeah. Really? But what's funny. And again, I've not been there. I'm reading it as, you know, my perspective. I loved it because I loved that there was a little humor and that it sounded like it was coming from a a being and not a science textbook about miscarriage. It was a human. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is exactly what people need. Like, right. Boobs are going to be gross and huge. I mean, and it was just I thought that was so refreshing. So I'm always surprised when people interpret that in a different way. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So this, I, mm, let's start with grief. I am the walking antidote that grief can't hit a moving target, right? 
I can't be hurt if I'm busy working and creating something. So totally think, know that very. Yeah. yeah. So two days after we lost Lorelai, I, um, went to my husband and I went to another friend who had suffered a, a miscarriage and I'm like, okay, here's what we know. Cause I'm a writer tr true to my core. I've always wanted to, you know, I've had a blog off and on since college. I've always wanted to write a book. I had no idea that it would be about something so gravely painful and personal, but here we are. Um, and I'm, but I visually, I can't always put things together. Certainly when it applies like bullet point information. And so I wrote everything out and I'm like, what else did, cause you do, you kind of black out. And I went to my husband and I'm like, what else do I say when I'm doing this? Like when I'm in the bathtub and I'm having cramps and I know it's coming, like, what do I do? What do I need? What do I say? And so he was kind of like, well, you've asked for this, you've asked for this kind of a situation. And then, um, a friend of mine, like helped me put it like in bullet point order. And then this was born. Um, it has been therapeutic to me. I refer to it a lot, even with, you know, getting your period back after like a surgery or a miscarriage. It's really, really, I think our society has overused the word triggering at this point, but there's no other word for it. But even having a period just is like, here we go again, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so. Or, or I feel like that there's like a certain form of hell that is tracking your HCG back to zero after your miscarriage. I don't I mean, do that. You don't do that. Yeah. I well, since I'm in a fertility clinic, that's something that they have to do. But yeah. I mean, you're technically pregnant mm -hmm. with pregnancy hormones. I mean, for me, my like nine weeks after my DNC. I'm still tracking my HCG down to zero, which is just waiting for my period to come for my body to recognize that it's no longer pregnant and right. for the next phase to happen. I mean, there is like a certain kind of hell that is that. It is. It is. It's definitely a PTSD. Like, yes. And so every period, whether or not you're trying to conceive or you've moved on or whatever, I think for so many people, every period can have a little bit of a, you know, uh -huh. might not last long, but there's just... You can't ever unsee and unfeel what you went through. Right. right. And every time you have a menstrual cycle, there's a tiny little bit of that that comes up every time. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, oh, so true. But I, I, I went about this in two different ways because all the information that I wanted to say, I'm like, that's not going to fit on a five by seven postcard. So I wrote two versions of it. There's a full blog where it is like a human, a girl, girlfriend, yeah. a girlfriend, just talking to you about the, you know, the things that you should and shouldn't do. And this, my goal for the actual handout of the miscarriage guide was to be everywhere, anywhere that it could be. Um, pharmacies. I didn't know this because I've never done this. Um, but I, I used to on Instagram every Sunday, I would do questions and polls mm -hmm. for my Instagram followers. And I would want, you know, if they had a miscarriage, tell me what you did, tell me who you called, tell me how it went for you. And like 30% called a pharmacist because their doctor was so hard to reach. Like the on-call nurse really couldn't help them. Their OB was unavailable. This was not technically an emergency. They didn't want to go to the emergency mm. room. So a lot of them called a pharmacist and I'm like, then this will be at a pharmacy. Um, 
physical therapists, chiropractors, more of a holistic approach rather than like your American medical standard OBGYN office. Um, but yeah, so when I first launched this, the Facebook page, Love What Matters, mm. um, are y'all familiar with that? <laughs> they picked it up and it went, I, I don't know anything about as much as I used to about um, social media, but I, it went like mini viral and it got shared like 30,000 times and a ton of people saw it, which was super great. Yeah. Um, but then you go and read the comments. Right. You know, and the only people who champion this, the only people who cheer it on are the people who've been there. Right. And they're like, I wish I could have had this. I am a hairdresser in Ohio. I've mailed like 20 of these to her because women come and get their hair done to feel beautiful after a loss. And they're still talking about it. And she's like, I've had so many women sit in my chair while I give them new highlights while they're grieving. And I don't know what to, to say to them. And I'm like, here we go. Um, but the medical industry hasn't been, you know, because my goal, I was very Pollyanna about it. And I have in big bold letters, this is not medical advice. This isn't your fault. I am, this isn't medical advice. I don't have a medical degree. You do. I am not trying to step on your toes. But I think it was maybe my third or fourth miscarriage. I just asked how many patients she'd seen that day who were experiencing loss. And I think I was like her seventh one of the day. Mm. And I started thinking, you know, this is like two years before the miscarriage guide. And I'm like, seventh in a day. And you don't and you have anything to give them. You don't have anything to give them. And you still just send them home. And I, um, I Instagram DM'd a woman in Tennessee who has uh, like a really holistic women's health facility. And I said, I would love to send these to you. They're free. I pay for the printing and the shipping myself. This is, this is my passion. Can I please send you some? And she kind of sent back a really snarky message. And she was like, I tell my patients this anyway, and I call them every day for a week after, why would I give them something that's so cold and so harsh as a postcard when I do this anyway? And I'm like, well, I'm really, really glad that you treat your patients like that because the majority of women do not receive that care. Right. Um, I have been told that I am being neurotic and dramatic, um, that this is, you know, not necessary yeah oh that's but, disgusting really you know, the, like I said the people who only want these and who read these and who refer them to friends are the people who have been there and who have been empty-handed and saying god I wish I had something you know um it really it really hasn't been a super warm welcome by a lot of people in my area in the medical field, they've kind of turned the other cheek. Um, the only OBGYN to carry this is my new OBGYN who just did my surgery in June. And she requested that she needed more. And I was about to black out from anesthesia and I just now remembered that. So I need to send her more. I haven't thought about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's why I go to her because she was the only one to hand them out to people. So- Do you 
do you think I have like a million questions, but one, do you think that's because of where you're located? I do. I do. Um, I don't. You don't? I don't. No. Oh, I'm so fat. I don't. I think it's I think it's medical arrogance. I think that these doctors think they're so fucking foolproof, excuse me, that because they're so highly educated and highly trained and highly informed and blah, 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 that how could someone come along and clean up a mess? I just think it's they're so insulted that mm. somebody without that training would have the guts to put it out there and point out a monstrous deficiency that their ego can't let them see. I just can't. I'm sorry, because it's not you. And it's the same. I think you could be anywhere USA and you'd get the same kind of pushback. You'd get one out of 10 go, oh, this is really well done. Thank you for thinking of it. So I don't think it's where you are. I think it's, I think it's them. Mm. I love everything about what you just said. And you said it, I did not. <laughs> That's right. I was on the news in my local market for the miscarriage guide, I think last spring. And I made, I'm friends with the, the news anchor, you know, Jackson's like a mid-sized market. Like everybody kind of knows everybody, but I think it's still considered a large ish area. Um, but I told the journalist who interviewed me to say specifically, I do not have an ax to grind. The, I, it's not us versus them. It's not the infertile women versus the white coats. I just need this to be better because truly we've already cried once. So why not do it again? Your maternal instinct kicks in so much. When you have a positive pregnancy test, you are already a mother. And then when you lose that child, you do not lose that maternal instinct. So you want to be wherever your child is, whether that is earthside or not. And your mental health takes such a blow. You just want to be wherever your baby is. And if that is not here, then it's not here. And I have never had suicidal ideations. I have never thought about hurting or harming myself, but I have thought many a time, what would it take to be with my babies? Hmm. And so I'm not trying to have a medical degree. I'm not trying to offend anyone in their career. But if we don't start taking care of our women who lose babies, then we will start to lose our women. I have never been so low in my life. That's it. That's a, that's. I've never been so low. I've never been so lonely. So if it takes a miscarriage guide or a book or a podcast or greeting cards or to have people in the medical industry laugh when they hear my name, because that's happened. Hmm. If it takes me having a reputation that precedes me in doctor's offices, which I have been told, so be it. So be it. Yeah, I Either. agree. I don't think there's anything. I, I love that you said that, though. It's not really us against them, but to um, to just inject some humanity into the conversation, I think is all people are looking for. And that's what bothers me the most, right? We're not trying to steal your thunder or say, but, but put some consciousness into what you're doing and saying, and that shouldn't be offensive to anybody. I would hope not, but here we are. We heard something the other day um, at a conference we went to that was like, either be the disruptor or 
prepare to be disrupted. Mm. And like that really resonated with Aaron and I because we think about that all the time. We wrote, Aaron and I wrote companion essays that um, were published on Rescripted and we got major, major pushback on them. And I remember telling like one of my mentors, Michael, about it. And I, and he was like, well, you did it then you did the, you did, you wrote what you needed to write. Like that's what's supposed to happen. Like you're either going to write the thing that creates the controversy because you like, you obviously touched on something that needed to be touched on. He's like, so you should look at it as a success. Like that is just how, I don't know, Aaron could articulate, like, articulate this a little bit better than I could probably, but. Um, no, you did great. But it's just that it's coming at it with such and Bailey, I bet you feel this. It's coming from something that's profoundly difficult to share in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then you do it for the good of other people and their issues and humanity. And then it's such a salt in the wound when someone is insulted mm-hmm. that you've done or said something that you felt like is just, I mean, warm and fuzzy and sentimental and B and I were both like what (laughs) I mean we've both had to have a lot of conversations about either either we're going to be disruptors and we're going to be change makers and we're gonna suffer for that because it's not a likable place and that might be the individuals and that might be the medical industry and we're trying to be friends with both sides like that's our whole mission is to help providers help their patients that's like kind of our whole pitch so we know that we are also potentially icing them out by doing like you said stepping on their toes or saying things that they don't like but we have to be willing to take those risks because we decided at the end of the day we're patient advocates that's where we live and it doesn't have anything to do with sales or finances or whatever at the end of the day we're going to speak up for the people we're representing and if that means we lose somebody in the marketplace as a result then we're just going to have to be willing to deal with that and if we're going to get nasty grammed every time we publish something that's provocative we're just going to have to learn to deal with it but we still have to pump each other up and be like it's fine you know, those people aren't for us. And the people that are for us are the ones who, you know, give the hearts and the high fives and the claps and all the things. And we love them for it. So while you were saying that, it reminded me, I used to have this mentality when I would do marketing campaigns for clients um, and you'd work so hard and you have all these good ideas and these pitches and the catchphrases and all this cute stuff. Um, and then one person would have a problem with it. Right. And it's the same thing for my platform for infertility. And I, I'm sure this is a defense mechanism, but I've always gone back and said, if you don't like what I did do better. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that as like an offense, but I'm like, do better than I did. I'm trying. This is me trying. Sure. My damnedest. If you don't like what I have to say, rewrite it and you do better because you weren't doing anything at all. And that's why I'm here. Right. I think that is such a healthy way to look at that. Amen. Yeah. Well, like you said in the very beginning, if not now, when, and if not who, and that's how we felt. We had this face-to-face, we sat down at a lunch table and said, in five years, we can still be having this conversation about how we wish things would change and how we wish there were more options and resources. 
or we just jump with both feet forward. We work our asses off and we see what we can do. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we picked the ladder and here we are. And it's been so amazing. You know, you, you work and work and work, it seems like, but just meeting you, just having, finding people that, you know, are touched by what we're doing, have, are courageous enough to speak up about it. And I feel like that's what's going to, it's that sea change. It's uniting the people that feel isolated and alone in pockets all over the country who finally we have enough strength in numbers to start standing up. And that's the only reason we did the podcast is like, how do we, how do we put more out there so that more people can say, Oh, I want to get in on this. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, yeah. I'm just really glad you came on. I feel like we're so, I'm so glad y'all found me. I know. And I have like, I don't know, like there's just so much more to unpack, but I, yeah, I, I love what y'all are doing. Thank you. Well, before we go, I do want to hear, I do want to hear about your son. What's his name? Yes. You said he's four. Tell us just a little bit about the sunshine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because for some people that hasn't happened yet. And for some people it has, and it doesn't negate any of the hard stuff, but it is nice when the sun comes out and the rainbow shows up. No, he's so wonderful. Um, his name is Sam and he, my husband, uh, the best name. <laughs> that's yeah, her husband's name. name. That's my husband's name. Um, so he, I hope I don't get long winded. We were terrified of adoption. I was terrified of adoption, right? It's not in our family. It wasn't super around me. Like it just felt very foreign. We didn't understand how that love would work. We didn't understand how any of it would work. Um, And slowly but surely over time, God just kept pressing into me that this was part of our story. And I pushed back and I said, thank you so much, but no, thank you. Um, And I just, you know, was not, not comfortable with that. And then my husband, who is most of the time a man of few words, starts coming to me and he's like, hey, I had a dream about us adopting a son. And I said, hey, shut up, because I didn't mean. And so... We just started really, really praying about it and digging deep and turning over our fear to God and just said, you can take this and turn it into whatever you want. And he turned our fear into a very, very deep desire um, to adopt a child. And we, I don't know, we just, we just knew that it would be a boy. We knew that it would be out of left field. And it was, it was very, very out of left field, very fast. And the timing of it was insane. You know, I've said it was three weeks to the day after we lost our daughter. So I was still swollen and bleeding and I still had my big old second trimester boobies and um, my book had just come out, you know, like Samuel moved home in June of 2021. He moved home June 16th of 2021. If you go to Amazon and see when my book was published, it says June 15th. Wow. Wow. And then we lost Lorelai in May. So it was, you know, and I, when I've talked to people before, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I just knew that the Lord was going to send me a baby. And I didn't think it would be three weeks after I lost another one. Like it was just, it was insane. Mm -hmm. Um, but he is 
every example of goodness and grace um, that we can think of. He loves his daddy. I mean, they just have such a sweet bond, you know, and I don't have brothers, um, but there's something about a father and son that has been so precious to be a witness to. And I think having a little boy has been so healing for my husband. Um, but when he is sweet and ready to cuddle, he is right up on me. Um, he's inquisitive. He's funny. He just turned four. Um, loves T-ball, loves Paw Patrol, loves big trucks, <laughs> like all the, the boyish things, loves playing in the dirt. He's a helper. He always wants to be around the house and help me cook. Um, we're about to paint our uh, bedroom this coming weekend. So I've been redoing some furniture. He wants to help me sand all the furniture. Um, and I will say for anyone who's going to listen to this, if you consider that you won't be able, you don't think that you'll be able to fully love a child um, that did not come from your bones, take it from me. I don't have a whole lot to compare it to. But if I loved him any more, I don't think I'd be able to live day to day. Like he is like staring directly into the sun. Like it is just the love is absolutely overwhelming. He is an answer to every whispered prayer that I never even said out loud. I just thought it to myself, but he, he's amazing. And now we are huge champions of adoption. So It's such a fun journey. Um, and depending on what age you get, I mean, it, it's, it's, it is, it's just a fun, exhausting, crazy, you know, thing. Cause when Sam came home, he was one and I'm like, oh, he's not a baby. He doesn't need me. He's got a full set of teeth. He's walking, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> that, that was simply not true. Like I look back at pictures and I'm like, he was a baby when he came home. Yeah. Wow. That's really amazing. And that makes me really excited. Yeah. We, yeah that's great timing. <laughs> yeah, it really is. <laughs> um, Cause I have just, and you know, things may change, but for now I am not pursuing biological children. Um, I just needed to have a break and I, I have a lot, I have health issues otherwise too. So um, it was a needed break per providers too. So, um, I'm proud yeah. of you for, for leaning into that. That takes a lot of courage to say I might be done or, or that you're done. That's a conversation that Aaron and I have all the time. It's that, that like, when is the time to tell, like, what is the responsibility of your provider of your, of your healthcare provider to have that conversation with you? Like, when does that happen? You know, what are the ethics involved in that? What are the, you know, at what point in time do you have to tell your patient, it's time for you to find joy, find joy other places, continue your path in another direction because mentally and spiritually, you can't keep doing this to yourself. Like, when does that conversation happen? Like, does it happen? Is that the responsibility of the provider to give you that permission to do that? Because like, my fertility doctors 
they still haven't told me that. It was my neurologist that told me that like, oh, Hey, you wow. need to take a, like a step back for a minute. Like we got to, I have multiple sclerosis. So he was like, it's time, like take a step back. Like we gotta, we gotta get you better. Not, not you have it trying to have a baby better, but like you better. Mm-hmm. And my fertility doctors were like, Oh no, it's time. Let's do another round of IVF, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I had to have, yes, I had to have a conversation with my husband that was like, I think I have to be done. My doctor, my neurologist, he thinks we need to be done for a little bit. And Sam looked at me and he said, I've been waiting for you to say that for over a year now. And I was just so, sorry, my dogs are barking. I was so thankful for him to have that reaction. I don't even know how to describe it. I was just so thankful that that was the reaction that he had because I was panicking. Mm. I don't know, but that's just my experience. I don't know. What do you think about like that? Like as a recurrent loss person? I know. I think, well, it takes intentionality between a doctor and a patient for them to truly remember. All right. She's had seven losses. X amount of rounds of IVF dollars spent on IVF. So much dollars. So many dollars. So many dollars. Um, when we were actively recording our podcast, I just ran, like I said, I was big on polls and questions in our area with our followers. Um, I interviewed 39 women in the central Mississippi area. Maybe a handful of them were out of state. And I said, just dollar amount, give it to me. And I added it up. It was $1.8 million for 39 women to journey through their infertility. Mm-hmm. And only two of them had children. Wow. One point. Wow. So that's the, the whole other thing. When people say just do IVF or just adopt or just have a surgery. Oh my God. All right, Janet, you just write me a check for it and then we'll call it. <laughs> I know. I, I mean, Sam and I, we spent over a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Um, but I think it takes, like I said, intentionality for a physician to look at a patient and not just see stats and just consider the person, what have they been through? Where else have they been? How much have they spent and recommend maybe six months, maybe Mm -hmm. don't, you know, go to therapy, go on Mm -hmm. vacation six months, but truly at the end of the day, they're not going to tell you that they're not, they're going to keep getting you ready for another round of IVF or the newest, hottest drug that just got approved by the FDA because that's their job. Mm -hmm. But our jobs as advocates, champions of women, moms, you got to know when to call it for yourself. You really do. I I think there's a, there's a disconnect there because medicine is so much based on statistical outcomes. And it's really easy to fall into the, you know, well, statistically, you'll get there eventually. You just mm-hmm. have to keep going. If you've only had seven, then maybe you just need 10. And I think that's the trap, is that we forget that these statistics are not in a void, that they're people, right? That 10 IVF cycles is too many for most people. And statistically, they can't physically, financially, and emotionally cope with that. So stop telling me, well, it's just been bad luck. 
you just have to keep going. Because I think at some point, that's medical negligence. To look at somebody who's falling apart, bankrupt, destitute, bereft, and say, statistically, you just have to keep going. I mean, at some point, I really think. It's four more rounds and, and we'll get there. Yeah. You know, I don't think that they mean, I don't think it's malicious. I just think that that's how they're trained to think is that we just follow the science and we follow the numbers and you just haven't gotten there yet. But we're human beings, you know, the, the females going through this are the incubators of life and they're not statistics. So that's what I mean. Just, there's, a, there's a disconnect in the medical society. It's just like the miscarriage thing. It doesn't have anything to do with your training. It has something to do with the fact that you recognize that I'm a human being mm-hmm. and someone just died in my body. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Can you just put your arms around me? You know, like, where is that kind of care in medicine? I don't think we've reached it yet. And I think that's one thing that I've always said is like, we know what death feels like from the insides now. Yeah. So maybe what we're saying holds some weight to it. You think, you know, Mm -hmm. we're not trying to step on your toes. We're not trying to cause a ruckus, but we've been through the worst thing a woman can go through. Yeah. Maybe we are going to cause a little ruckus. I'm just, yeah. Just a small one. Um, I'm going to email you Bailey, because I think you'll appreciate this. Our essays that we wrote for Rescripted, I'm going to email them to you. They're controversial or they're not controversial. I don't even think they're controversial personally, but, um, 60% of the rest of the world thinks they are. So (laughs) I can't wait to read. Yeah. But but they're personal. We didn't, it's, you know, we didn't write it about somebody else. We wrote it about ourselves. Yeah. So I think when you're writing about yourself, you're allowed to say what you need to say. Yeah. And I think I've run into that a lot with like blogs and parts of my book and parts of the miscarriage guide or all of the miscarriage guide. I'm, I didn't make this up. This actually, right. this actually happened to me. Right. So if you have an issue with my reality and my real life that says more about you than it does about me, but also I'll be super careful next time to not talk about hard things around you. You know what I mean? Like for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot, but um, I'm just really excited. I feel like we just made an amazing friendship, kinship in our our mission. So I'm excited to see what we might be able to do together in the future. I was going to say, I'm on board girls, whatever you need. I love that. Um, and I'm, we're close together. We should like meet in the middle one day and do like a lunch or what is the event that you host in the springtime? Cause we have an event planned coming up late spring too. Oh my gosh. Um, so what do you do? Tell us about it. So it's called the bloom and grow. Okay. Um, and it's a women's event, uh, the Saturday before mother's day. Um, which I, again, that I don't usually make all this stuff up. I just get that sort of that spiritual feeling of like what comes next kind of a thing. And I've got three friends who helped me host it and plan it. And they've all been through infertility as well. And, um, we have door prizes and we choose three speakers for the event. Um, 
where really it just circles back to what I've always called like womanhood, motherhood, and otherhood. Uh, you know, you, you're still a full, complete woman, even if you didn't get a chance to become a mom or even if you didn't become a mom by way of natural childbirth. Um, so we've had, it's, we're going into our third year and uh, we've had incredible speakers, women just sharing their stories about, um, gosh, our first year, my friend Kate spoke about losing her nine month old baby girl to a heart disease. Oh my gosh. And then my friend Jill has an incredible story. Um, I don't think she'd mind if I shared, but uh, she was married once before and went through all these rounds of IUI and he, her husband left. Um, so, but just all these incredible stories of just overcoming the hardships that women have in front of them. And it was very important to me to give women something to do on Mother's Day weekend that didn't involve standing up at church and raising your hand and receiving the carnation because you've right. given, you know, that right. I do talk a lot about my faith, but I also talk a lot about the way that the modern church has absolutely just kicked dirt in women's face when it comes to motherhood. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm in both camps, but yeah, that it's called the the Bloom and Grow Women's Event, and I don't really know what's coming next for it. It's been a joy to do, but I have a feeling some sort of change is coming with it, so I'm excited to see what that is. What about y'all? Go ahead, Erin. Oh. <laughs> um, so ours is actually very similar but different. We've never done it. We are, it's also, we're planning it for the weekend before Mother's Day, but we're calling it Not Yet Mother's Day, and just sort of, kind of the same thing, just an idea for the infertile community to have an opportunity to be together and prepare. Be celebrated. Be celebrated, prepare for the following weekend, and remember that if you haven't had a baby yet, that, you know, that's not the deciding factor. There are so many women who just aren't there yet. They haven't really had that opportunity yet. And I think it's, you know, we just want to figure out ways to open those doors and celebrate and have them feel remembered. Um, yeah. So. I'm just to come. Yeah. We'll yes. co-conspire on our ideas. Yes. <laughs> um, well, this has been, is there anything else that you would like to share? I don't think so. I feel like we covered a good bit of everything. Um, a lot. This has just been a joy, and I'm so thankful to have connected with y'all. But yeah, I'll send you all of my, I call them props. I'll send you all my props. Um, I love that. <laughs> but yeah, I think motherhood comes to women in all different ways and shapes and forms. And even if it never comes to you in a traditional way, you are still every bit of a woman that you want to be. So I love that so much. Yeah. That's a great take home. It is. It is. This has been such a joy and I don't even know. There's a lot of words that I could use to describe the last hour. Um, but just thank you so much. And I just really am happy to have, to have met you. Me yeah. too. Thank you. Same. 
The Protected Space podcast is hosted by Aaron Attaway and Bryant Liggett and is brought to you by The Fertility Resort. To learn more about us, head over to thefertilityresort.com and give us a follow on all social platforms at Protected Space Pod.